Welcome to Seeking Sanctuary House to Heart, a podcast about abuse, trauma, and finding healing in the arms of Christ. I'm Nikki from House of Faith and Freedom, and you can check us out online at houseoffaithandfreedom.org, as well as on Facebook and Instagram. I'm here today with the founder of House of Faith and Freedom and my co-host, Hannah Fordyce. Nikki said, I'm Hannah, and today we have a really incredible survivor on the show. As a quick trigger warning before we get into it, we are going to be talking about some difficult themes this episode, including sexual assault. So please be gentle with yourself, as always, for the safety and privacy of our guests. All survivors will only go by a first name, which sometimes may have been changed. That said, I am so grateful to have Mark on the show today with us. Thanks for being here, Mark. Well, thanks for having me. It's an honor. Absolutely. So we know that sharing a survivor story is just never easy, but it can be particularly challenging when we're talking about something as vulnerable as sexual assault. What caused you to decide to share your story? Well, it's, I guess I'm going to start off by saying, you know, I've listened to all your podcasts before this. And I got to say my level of respect for the survivors you've had on there has gone up so high. I, mean, I already was like, wow, these, these survivors are awesome. But going through the process of doing this is way harder than I thought it was going to be. There's, there's way more to it and the amount of strength that it took them. And I just, it's impressive. It really is. And so thank you to all of them who've gone before me because you helped give me the strength to do this. But my story is one that I think needs to be shared. Uh, I think other people need to hear it because it's not one that I hear a lot, mainly because I'm a guy. You know, a lot of people don't talk about guys as being victims. They talk about us as being perpetrators quite a bit, but they don't talk about um, what it's like for somebody like me to go through that kind of experience. And I know I'm not alone. I know that there are a lot of other people out there who are going through the same kind of thing, but because of all kinds of different stigmas, we're supposed to just brush it off or keep it silent. And that's just not okay. And so I wanted to come on here and I wanted to let other men know specifically, but just in general, let people know that this is not something that doesn't happen. This happens. It's real. And yeah. I'll link this study, but according to the National Intimate Partner and Sexual Violence Survey, nearly 25% of men in the United States have experienced some form of contact sexual violence. And so you bring up a really important point, which is that there are a ton of male survivors both of intimate partner violence and of sexual assault. And because of the stigma we have around it, it's just not something we talk about. And it's something that gets hidden away. And I think also that skews the statistics. It, mm-hmm. I think these are heavily underreported. And, and even when we look at intimate partner violence or domestic violence statistics, there's almost no difference between men and women. It's a really common thing. And we sort of have to rip off the band-aid of believing that this is only a gendered problem and start really thinking about it and exposing it as a human problem 
So if you're, I mean, if you're comfortable, can you tell us a little bit about what happened in your story and with your particular assault? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I had parents that went out of town for the weekend. And because my parents were out of town, I figured it would be a good idea to throw a party. <laughs> and so at, at 15, I filled my house with a bunch of people from school that I knew 99% of the people that were there and brought in a ton of booze. Uh, and we just, we partied it up for the most part. When I was just starting out, I was fairly sober through the night and mostly because I was worried about my parents stuff getting broken. Uh, but as the night went on, as people started to leave, I started to relax a little bit because the people that were there were the people that were in my smaller circle. So I trusted them more. I felt like I, I was okay to let my hair down. And one of the people in that circle brought someone with them, uh, somebody I'd never met before. She was early 20s. I think it was a thing of, you know, she was home from college kind of deal visiting somebody and and I don't know why she chose me at the time but she did and started started to to hit on me you know making passes offering me drinks and at first I said you know no I'm not interested you know I had a girlfriend at the time she had just left and it was when she left that this all started. I was like, no, I don't, I don't have any interest. You saw my girlfriend just a few minutes ago. Yeah. But she persisted. She's like, oh, well, okay, fine. But hey, have another drink. Let, let's just, let's just have a good time then. And so I would drink more and drink more to the point where I was, I was pretty ready to be done drinking and she was still handing me drinks. And while she was handing me drinks, she was whispering things in my ears saying, this is, um, she was saying, this is not what you really want. What you really want is me that you need a, a woman with some experience. You need, uh, to, to let go of all this kitty stuff. And, and the, the lower my guard got, the more she manipulated my thoughts. And I followed along. She could have told me to go jump off the roof and I'd have done it just because I, I really had no idea what I was doing. And eventually she took me to my room and and it was there that she assaulted me. And I I woke up the next morning very confused, trying to figure out remember who this woman in my bed even was, how it happened, how did we get here? I still you know, I think this is in a way a kind of a God blessing that because I was I was so drunk I don't remember all the details. And so I'm thankful for that, but, but I definitely remember enough. I remember enough to know that what was going on, I didn't want. And 
and then it it just snowballed from there as far as you know how do i how do i even get out of this how do i get out of this situation and the reality is, is i couldn't because i had a house full of friends still they all knew what was going on they knew what happened but when you're a guy especially at 15 and I, I don't know maybe this doesn't really go away as you get older but at 15 it was hey you got lucky man this is so awesome this is great good for you high fives all around and i didn't know how to respond to it so i went along with it like yeah look at me i'm such a stud woohoo <laughs> and that just added to the confusion like, wait, I'm supposed to like this. I'm supposed to be proud of what I did. But I'm not. I felt stupid. I felt manipulated. I felt like somebody had just used me and threw me away. I didn't talk to her after that. She was gone. And I, I was left there, you know, just feeling like a fool. And not having anybody to process that with, you know, and and to some extent, I don't know that I could process that with anybody at first because I didn't realize what had happened to me in the the sense of being raped. My thought was, well, I got drunk, I made a mistake, and this is just my punishment for doing that, you know. And so I have to learn how to how to live with it. I didn't understand that what had happened to me was a violation that I had been hurt and, and someone, someone did it to me. It, it wasn't, it wasn't something that I did. It was something that someone did to me. So it, it took a while to even get my head to a place where I could sort of start to figure it out on my own. It was, it was a very strange experience. I think there's so many things we can dig into in your story that resonate with a lot of people who've experienced sexual assault. One of the ones that particularly stands out to me is our lack of understanding in popular culture around the idea of consent and what exactly that entails. Actually, interestingly enough, in Minnesota, regardless of if you had been sober and had been willing, it still wouldn't have been consent because, <laughs> because right. you were underage and she yeah. was 36 months older than you. And so it literally still would have been a crime for her. Yeah. And regardless of all of that, right, she was feeding you drinks to a point where you were unable to consent regardless and yeah. then manipulating you in that state. And there's this really great video, I'll post a link to it, this YouTube video, I think it came out like seven years ago that talks about consent and it compares it to drinking tea. Like if you ask someone if they want tea and they say yes, great, make them some tea and give them a cup of tea. Even if the time, during the time that you're making the tea, they decide they no longer wanna drink it, you're not entitled to watch them drink tea. Like they don't have to drink it, they can still choose not to. And if someone is unconscious and you make them a cup of tea, you're not entitled to pour the tea down their throat. They can't say that they want the tea. They can't drink the tea. Yeah. And so it's this really like interesting analogy to the 
I think, breaks down the idea of consent really well to understanding when someone is able to say that they want something and participate in it. And I mean, I hope this is something that's changing in culture, but I think it's still a real struggle is that we tend to blame people for sexual assaults happening when there's alcohol involved. And if we don't blame them, we at least seem to excuse the sexual assault by being like, well, you were drunk and you put yourself in this really risky situation. And this is especially true, I think, in Christian culture. So how do you think that alcohol can be used as sort of this tool of minimization when it comes to assaults? And why does that make it so complex and challenging as a survivor to work through and process what happened to you? Well, I think there's a lot of culture that that craves this hyper accountability that says, if you did something, it was your fault. You have to take ownership for everything that you can't be the victim. You can't blame everybody else for your problems. You got to own up to it. And we see this, especially I see it in the church a lot because we're talking about things that are sinful. You know, I shouldn't have been drunk, especially at 15. I shouldn't have done that. That was sinful. But, but one of the things that I think we miss in culture is that there's no excuse for sexual assault. It doesn't matter what the situation is. You could have somebody laying there nude in front of you and it doesn't matter if they say no, if they can't consent, it's not your fault. Yet people still want to say, well, you shouldn't have done that. And and I think in part it's because there's a, a mentality that says, well, if somebody could have something happen to them, then they were vulnerable. And if they were vulnerable, then maybe I'm vulnerable. And the reality is this can happen to anyone, whether it's being sober or not. This kind of thing can happen to anyone. And that scares people. And it should. It should scare them. This is a terrifying experience. And it's a terrifying thing to think that you don't have 100% control over everything. So it's easy to blame. It's easy to blame the person for for doing things that they shouldn't have been doing well that's why it happened in like the 80s 90s early 2000s era of a sort of christianity there was something called purity culture that was a really Mm -hmm. big movement and especially in like evangelical protestant churches and Part of that whole movement was this real pressurizing of like, you know, we don't really talk about sex except in the context of like, don't do it. Don't have sex before marriage, period. And that's the end of the talk. Um, But one of the things that I find really interesting and challenging about that culture also is it gave this sort of uh, generalization of the idea that men can't control themselves sexually. And they, they're not responsible for like the temptation put before them and how they respond to that temptation, right? So it really like moved the culpability mm-hmm. off of the individual and onto whoever was the air quotes temptation. And I feel like I'd be curious how you saw that play out in your story, both in the sense of um, how your friends reacted to the assault and being like, yeah, man, way to go. 
right? And thinking that like, oh, I should have wanted it. And also on the flip side of that, of going, even though it was a female and the genders were reversed, there's sort of this inherent when you grow up in the church belief that somehow you were too tempting as the victim. Something about you was like too exposed and you're now at fault for for the assaults because they couldn't control themselves around you because of the temptation that you were. Absolutely. There was a thing of, you know, from my friends, a lot of the, the approach that they had was this is what guys are supposed to do. You know, men are pigs. So you might as well act like a pig. So you, you know, this is what you do. And I was supposed to be proud of that. I was supposed to have that high body count. And I was just starting early, so good job. And that was the exact opposite of what I was getting at church, where you're being told that if you have sex with somebody else before you're married, then you're giving away a part of yourself. You're not, you're not you anymore, essentially. That your value goes down because you experience something. And I, I think back at the time, you know, this was 32 years ago. I don't know if they still do this in church or not, but there was a, an illustration that people would use where they take a piece of paper and they ball it all up and then they open it up and you have all the creases in the paper. And they would say, look, this is not the same anymore. And then they ball it up again. You see, when you open it up, there's more creases. The more you do this, the more this leaves a mark on you, the more this takes away from your value. So you have to protect it with everything that you have inside of you. Well, the problem is when you've been assaulted, it's like, well, okay, I guess I'm damaged goods now. That I don't have the value that I had before. I am less of a person for having been assaulted. But that's just not true. But it's a cultural thing that makes it really hard to get away from it. You know, it, one of the one of the things I see now used in other illustrations, but same kind of thing is you take a $20 bill and you crinkle it up and you open it up. That's still a $20 bill. It still has all the value that it had before. That does not define the person. That does not define this piece of paper. Um, there, there is an incredible amount of value that God puts into us being created in his image that nobody can take away. No, you're not so good that you can take away <laughs> my value, uh, that you're somehow bigger than God to be able to strip that away. That's God given. You can't touch it. I have value and that's not going to change. And impurity culture kind of went away from that. You know, I, in the same lines, I don't think that purity culture is a hundred percent bad in the idea of, no, you should have sex within the context of marriage. There is a God given design for sex between a husband and a wife that. That's very definite and is a beautiful, wonderful thing in that context. Now, say if I was a, a youth leader and I'm talking to a group of kids, if there was somebody that had been assaulted, you know, my, my initial reaction is going to be, it's not your fault. You didn't do this to yourself. This is not, 
something that makes you a bad person. You are still loved by God. You are still beautiful and whole and holy. This doesn't change that. If you had a boyfriend girlfriend situation where they just decided that they were going to become sexually active, well, then, okay, this is not God's best for you. That's not the way that sex was supposed to be used. And, you know, you can explain that. But the idea that somehow having sex makes you less of a person, that's just, mm-hmm. that's just wrong as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. That's so powerful, Mark, because as you were saying that we're made in the image of God, he's Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and we are mind, body, and spirit. And when I consider your story, I could see the temptation being over the top to buy into the lie that, okay, I'm damaged goods. That's, that's bad. My body's bad. And what I hear you saying is it just shows how much God has really come in and rescued that part of you. And doesn't he rescue? He rescues yeah. from those incredible deep lies. That is, that is so encouraging to me. And I know it must be for those who are listening. Yeah. It is beautiful, especially now to be able to look at the relationship I have with my wife and the connection that we have. And, you know, we have a wonderful marriage. You know, what happened in the past brought along some baggage with it, of course, but there's still no reason that I can't have a wonderful marriage, that I can't have this beautiful, physical, intimate relationship with my wife. You know, I should say it in, in this, though, you know, that was 32 years ago, and that didn't happen overnight. That does take time. You know, one of the ways that a person responds to sexual trauma is oftentimes to become hypersexual. And I did that. You know, so that just kind of compounded on the whole purity culture thing that I was having sex all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and because I was doing that, you know, it made me feel almost normal because I felt damaged. I had to go through the process of, I, I guess I shouldn't say I had to, but I went through the process of needing to feel used because I thought that's what sex was supposed to be about. That even though I didn't really want to have sex all the time, it was something that I was still doing because that felt normal to me. It felt normal to feel used. It felt normal to be um, out of control. And it took a long time to be able to say, you know, that isn't how this is supposed to work. That I am not defined by, by the assault. Being assaulted doesn't mean that, that I'm, I'm sentenced to this life of being used by, by anybody and everybody that wants to. That's just not the case. But it took a while to get there. It really did. So how did God reach into that space and bring you through a process of, of resurrecting his, his truth and his sexual design and all of that? Well, the, the process was spread out over a long period of time. And it started out with, with me just accepting that it happened. It took me a long time to, 
to do that. I figured that it was just me being dumb and that was my, my punishment. But in, in a, a circle one time talking with some other people, I heard about a young woman, same age, 15, that was in the exact same situation. She, somebody had better drinks, had sex with her. She didn't consent to it. Uh, but because she was so drunk, she didn't fight either. So there was, there was this kind of thing of, for me, it was, that's just horrible. Why would anybody do that to somebody? And then it was like God opened up a, a window that said, you were that girl. You were in that situation. You were the one that was too drunk to say no. You were the one that was young, being taken advantage of by somebody who was much older. And so once that clicked, I was like, holy crap that's ugh. i'm i'm not who i thought i was and then the process goes from okay i'm a victim of this this was something that was done to me to how do i survive this knowing what i know and i i think for me and i don't know if this is a an across the board kind of thing but it kind of hurts me a little bit when someone announces that this has happened to them. And immediately the response is, you know, you're not a victim, you're a survivor. And I get that you're trying to encourage the person to make them feel strong and empowered. It's okay to be a victim for a little while too. And just acknowledge that something bad happened to you. And I had to rest in that. And I wasn't to the point of, of knowing how to survive this yet. I was still just trying to figure out how to survive. And over time, what happened for me is that I had a series of relationships that not just romantic, but personal relationships that helped me to be able to come to grips with what happened and what that meant for me long-term that I'm not my past. I am a child of God. And you know, that they say that didn't that instance did not define me. So who am I? Who did God create me to be? What does that look like? And then I had to grow in that. You know, one of the things and kind of going back to to the idea of the victim shaming with the alcohol and the drugs and all that kind of stuff and what went along with that. Uh, it was a thing for me where we talk about behavior modification a lot of times that you just got to fix the sin. You got to, you got to go back and keep people from doing drugs and keep people from drinking. And then bad things are just never going to happen, but it's not about behavior modification. It's about identity modification, knowing who I am in Christ. That is how I can grow in this and know that yes, I do have value because God says I have value. I do have purpose because God gave me purpose. When I understand that, and when I understand that I, that can't be taken away from me, then I was able to start looking at, okay, I'm, I'm not this horrible person. I am somebody who can go out and, and make a difference and feel and have something to offer. I think you're getting at this really important reality that trauma and the way that we cope with it 
is going to show up in various different ways, healthy and unhealthy. A lot of times I think coping with trauma and that survival, it doesn't always lead us into good patterns, right? Because you're literally just trying to keep your head above water. And um, actually, it's sort of interesting that there are like four buckets of behaviors that we tend to do as trauma responses. One of those is reenactments. So that would be the hypersexualization after sexual mm-hmm. assault. Another one of them is avoidance of triggers or of negative emotions and feelings. And that would be your things like self-medicating with drugs or with alcohol or um, you know, things like that that can numb you or help you feel less intensely about the emotions or the experience. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes as the church, especially, we can get really hung up on the unhealthy coping mechanisms that we see. And we like shame people into the ground for those ways that they're coping. And we're just like, you sinner, you know, you need to fix all this stuff without going, why do they feel the need to be living this way? Why do they feel the need to use drugs and alcohol? Why do they feel the need to go out and sleep with multiple different people? Like what is the void they're filling or what is the thing that they're avoiding? Mm -hmm. And if we could look at people from the perspective of their value first, their value to God, their identity and who God is, the fact that they're an image bearer of God. And we could come at it from that perspective of compassion in the beginning. What kind of an impact would that make as we lead them into a better way of coping, into a better way of healing, right? Into a way that can actually help them address some of those traumas in an informed way without resorting to avoidant behavior or to reenacting behavior. And that would make all the difference. Like I, I wish that that was something that we could do better as the church. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I think one of the things that I held on to for so long, as I said, is, well, I was drunk. It was my fault. Well, the thing is, rape is not an acceptable punishment for being drunk. It's just not. And I, I see so often, and, and this came down through the years too, because I, I mean, I had my own struggles before this all happened. So I was already starting into my addiction. I mean, that's why I threw a house party. <laughs> um, but the, the reasons why I drink, why I use drugs had nothing to do with, Oh, hey, I want to go out and then not be able to remember anything that I've done for the last 48 hours. And I want to go and hurt people and have to apologize all the time because that's just a good thing to do. There's a a commercial from back to the, I think it was from the Nancy Reagan, just say no kind of campaign that said, uh, nobody wants to be a junkie when they grow up. And there's truth to that because, you know, who would want to choose that kind of life? Is they're choosing to have some sort of reprieve from something that they are not able to cope with. We have to start looking at, okay, what are the reasons why? And for me, a lot of my stuff was mental health issues that I was self-medicating. I didn't know who to talk to. Um, and so I would, I would try to numb everything. Mm-hmm. 
or I would try to enhance it so much that everything was overloaded, which in turn kind of gives you the same sort of numb feel. Mm -hmm. If somebody had said, instead of, you just need to quit drinking, you need to get your act together, and instead said, why do you feel the need to do that? What is it about your life that makes you want to escape it? There's, there's so much to that, that instead of being told that I'm wrong, I want to be told that I'm cared about. Right. Which is what was so damaged initially. Yeah. And yeah. it's like those lies come trickling in so powerfully through suffering and through that, that kind of assault or any assault. And like you said, can we begin to ask questions that help identify what those lies are that traveled with that suffering that had no business being there? Mm -hmm. I just hear a deep love for others in the desire to ask those questions that truly care about the personhood, the deep hearted personhood of another. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you for that. If you listen to this podcast at all, you hear me quote this book somewhat frequently, um, but The Body Keeps the Score because it really is such a good book on trauma. And there's a quote in it. It's kind of funny. I literally just had this book open on my desk for something else I was working on, and it was open to this page. That's just so applicable to what you're saying. It says, traumatized human beings recover in the context of relationships with family, loved ones, AA meetings, veterans organizations, religious communities, or professional therapists. The role of those relationships is to provide physical and emotional safety, including safety from feeling shamed, admonished, or judged, and to bolster the courage to tolerate, face, and process the reality of what happened. Recovery from trauma involves reconnecting with our fellow human beings. This is why trauma that has occurred within relationships is generally more difficult to treat than trauma resulting from traffic accidents or natural disasters. And when I listen to this quote, I mean, I just go, isn't that the crux of it? Trauma, especially trauma that happens in the context, again, of relationships, like when we're looking at sexual assaults, when we're looking at intimate partner violence, when we're looking at child abuse and neglect, these types of things, they happen human to human. And there's something about that that creates in us already a, a sensation of not being safe with other people. So we almost turn inside ourselves to cope. We avoid, we self-medicate, we do whatever. We don't want to talk about it with other people. And then when you're inside a context unfortunately, often like the church, like faith communities, where the first initial response could be some degree of judgment or of victim blaming or of telling you how you should modify your behavior, it can end up really harming instead of being that like safe community space to just say like, hey, this is your unchanging identity in Christ. It doesn't shift. It doesn't change no matter what you've done, no matter where you are. It doesn't change. And we want to help come around you and help you process and work through this so that you can move forward into God's best for you. Like, I love that phrase that you said, Mark, God's best for you. How do we aim for that instead of looking back at people's histories and saying like, shame, shame, shame for the things that have happened to you or for the way that you've coped with the things that have happened to you? Mm -hmm. The church has such an opportunity to be a tool of healing, to be a community of healing and to bring the truth 
of people's identity to them. And I just fear we don't often step into that. What would you tell the church about dealing with trauma that may have ugly outsides to it? I think there's a, an understanding that the church needs to have that the process of healing and the process of, of getting your coping skills transferred from unhealthy to healthy, that there is a real reality that that is messy work. You have to be able to get your hands dirty. You know, one of the things that I, I struggled with in, in the aftermath of, of all of this was that because I didn't want it, because I felt so bad afterwards, I started to wonder if I was gay. Like, well, if I didn't like this, then maybe I'm into, I'm into guys. And I had nobody to talk to, especially back then. Because back then, it's the only thing you talked about with gay people is that they probably have AIDS and that they're perverts. You know, that was the, the thought process back then. So not only do I now feel like I, I've got all this stuff going on, but I also have this extra level of, well, you're obviously a pervert then too. What do you, how do you tell people that in that kind of environment? But the reality is God made us for community. We are supposed to commune with him. We're supposed to commune with each other. We're not meant to go through life alone. You know, even Jesus had, you know, he had his 12 friends, but he also had his three and they hung out. They got deep. You know, I don't think Jesus was sitting around on the times that aren't in scripture, just talking about weather and sports. And I'm sure he did, but that wasn't all of it. He had some depth. You know, he struggled. He faced everything that we faced. You know, he did it perfectly. He got through it. You know, I can't say that for myself, but the reality is, is God got in with the messy people because the messy people needed God. And we have to be willing to do that. If we're going to love each other the way that he showed his love for us, then we have to be willing to be uncomfortable. We have to be willing to get in and work on things that are not, not <laughs> a Hallmark movie. You know, you know, had I had somebody to talk to back then, I would have been able to say, no, okay, that's not really what's going on. It's just, it's confusing, but that's not what's going on. Instead, I had to hold that in my head and, and feel that way about myself. And yeah, it's just, it's a shame. And it, and it's when you hear other people tell their stories that you start seeing the healing happening. One of my recovery meetings, I, I, just blurted out. I was standing in front of the group of people and I just blurted this story out the real like 30 second version of it. And I had no intention of doing it as the Holy spirit said, okay, it's time to start opening up. And so that's what we did. And, and the response that I got afterwards was amazing because in, in the recovery meetings that we had, we had these large groups and then you go into these small groups and in the small groups, and I know this because people, it's normally a confidential thing, but they personally shared some of these things. There were people that were saying, 
wait a minute, it wasn't my fault? I wasn't the one that, that did this? And they were able to leave that group feeling lighter. They were able to leave that group feeling like they weren't a horrible person for this. You know, at least to some extent. And when we share our stories, when we're able to talk about it, and this is why I'm, I'm even doing this, is healing can happen in that space. And I would much rather find healing than be comfortable. You go from having a secret to having a story. It's a life-changing direction to go in. That is so redemptively powerful, what you just said. The picture that just comes to mind is you being a mouthpiece, a voice in the spirit to turn on these lights in the dark room of someone else's heart. I just praise God for that. I mean, that is, that is powerful. I was thinking of um, in, a, in abusive relationships, one of the tactics that I would say is almost universal is the use of isolation and sort of moving the victim in the relationship away from other people and away from community. And what that does is it creates this like bubble where the only feedback they're getting, the only input they're getting is from the abuser. And when I think about Satan as the ultimate abuser, that's what he does to us. He isolates us and cuts us off from community, from other voices, from other people, so that all that we can hear are the lies that are being fed to us. So that all we can hear is the shame and all we can hear is the self-doubt and and those things echo around and they gain power when there's nothing else to contradict it. And so there's so much power when we do have the willingness to come forward and talk about uncomfortable things like the messiness of real life. And when we bring that into the light, we allow truth to come in on it. And on top of that, we open the door for somebody else to bring their stuff into the light. Like we take the first step, we give them the gift of going first and being vulnerable first. And it's always shocking the number of people that can relate to your personal story. Right. Like I have found that over and over and over again in this work. It's like, even when I just tell people what I do, like mm -hmm. even when I just say that I work in domestic <laughs> violence, like you would be shocked in totally unrelated business networking meetings, the number of people who asked to talk to me afterwards because they had an experience with abuse. Like it is just so much more common than we give it credit for. And that's true on any level of trauma or abuse or assault. Not that someone has your exact same experience, not that they're gonna understand it perfectly, but that there are gonna be commonalities that weave through our stories. And so when we take the step of being vulnerable, of being willing, we open the door for healing in their lives and in our own lives. Mm -hmm. Why would we not want to do that? Yeah. Doing that, shining light in a dark place, that is a holy thing. And it's something that God exemplified. He modeled that. And you know, one of my favorite verses in scripture is John eleven thirty five. It's the shortest verse in the Bible. It's Jesus wept. Those two words are so powerful because Jesus knew that Lazarus was going to come out of the grave. 
He knew what was going on, but he took the time to stop and weep with his friends. Mm. And when it says wept, you know, the literal translation from that it is not like this, you know, kind of Hollywood one single tear rolling down your cheek romantic way. This is bawling snot bubble tears. God got into what we were experiencing. He experienced it for himself. And and for him to get down into it, why wouldn't we want to do the same thing? Why would we try to push that away? You know, like I said, this is very new for me to talk about this particular subject. But talking about you know, the mental health stuff that I talk about, with addiction stuff that I talk about, there's been opportunities for me to get up on the stage to share my deep, dark secrets and have people come up to me and say, this is the first time I've been in church and I haven't felt like a freak. This is the first time that I've been in church and I haven't felt like I was being judged. People are coming closer to God because of what he's doing through me. As a Christian, why would I not want to be used by God that way? That is incredible. This is such a rewarding feeling to be able to be in a place where you can say that, yes, I did make a difference. I heard a study, one of those you know, Barna studies a while back that said that public speaking is not the number one fear anymore. That it has gone from, from public speaking to not feeling like you made a difference. This is a perfect way to make a difference. We all want to do it. We all want to know that we're important. And I can say that God loves me. And I can say that he gives me purpose. But he also is a God who is generous. And he is a God who's going to give me opportunity to see that purpose played out. It's a beautiful thing. Beautiful thing. And I... You know, I used to be one of those guys that hated to cry. Nobody ever saw me cry. You know, unless my leg is caught in a bear trap, you're not going to see me cry. One of the most beautiful experiences I've ever had is getting off stage and weeping with someone who is experiencing a breakthrough, who experienced the love of God. I can't imagine a Christian not wanting that. Think about what you had said earlier around sometimes we rush people from being a victim to being a survivor. And we have this tendency to really want to push people through to like the three days later triumphant resurrection without allowing them the time to go through the three days of mourning before that. And I, I mean, I just think a part of the reality of sort of living in this like now and not yet kingdom paradox of like the kingdom of God is here and yet we're still like reaching it is that we can simultaneously hold hope and sorrow and grief. And we can't push people to get through their messes faster because a lot of times the real healing, the real beauty, the real purpose that God's going to bring out of it, it's found in meeting them down in the dirt and just weeping with them there and not trying to fix it and not trying to like push something on them that they're not ready for yet. Yeah. And I wish that we could come to grips with the reality that we're messy people and we will continue to be messy all the way till the other side of eternity. 
and so will every other single person. And there should be an inherent connection there and recognizing like we're all in the mess together. And God's going to redeem that mess over time. And also it's okay to be really grieved by the injustice, by the pain, by the loss that we experience in life. We actually have to, even Jesus did. And that's part of the beauty of him as a savior is he gets it. Yeah. You know, he's the God who weeps with us. He's the God who still carries the scars. He didn't get rid of them. Right. And, And for some people, you know, change does happen quickly it can be something where, you know, they say a prayer, they feel God and and something changes in their life that happens. But that is the exception, not the rule. If miracles were happening all the time, they wouldn't be miraculous. A lot of people like to quote from Jeremiah when Jeremiah is talking to God and God says, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and give you hope and a future. And we're supposed to grab onto that. Yeah, sure, we are. But they always seem to neglect the part where it took 70 years for that to come through for Jeremiah. What was happening in that 70 years? And, you know, thankfully, it hasn't been 70 years. I didn't have to go through it for that long. But it took a long time. There's a lot to unpack. There's a lot to go through. This is a journey. Yes, God is going to redeem things in the end and everything is going to be perfect. And, you know, this is my favorite verse in scripture, Revelation 21, 4. He's going to wipe away every tear from your eye. There'll be no more death, no more mourning. And the the old order of things are going to pass away. But he said that 2,000 years ago. That's a long time. But yeah, God is here with us in this. He gave us the church as a tool to be able to experience his love in bodily form. Mm -hmm. The church needs to get into this. We need to talk about what's going on. We need to, to reach out and touch the people that are sitting in our pews. And you know, you can't heal something by saying it's not there. You have to acknowledge it. You have to get down into it. And I understand you know, I don't want anybody to feel guilty for not doing it in the same sense, because for me, there was a long time where <laughs> there was no way I could take my experience and turn it into what I'm doing right now. 32 years. I'm just now talking about it openly for the first time, like to the world. There are times where we have to say, you know what? I want that, but I'm just not ready for it yet and be okay with that. But most people aren't in that situation. And, and I think we need to be willing to step out and say, even if I don't understand what's going on, I do understand what it's like to need a friend. I do understand what it's like to have a listening ear. It doesn't have to be, you don't have to have a master's degree in, in trauma care to be able to help somebody through something you need to be present you need to be open and willing to have that kind of conversation and being honest and saying you know what i have no idea what you're going through i've never experienced this but i care about you and i want to help you through this however i can you are not alone are powerful powerful words you can face a lot of things if you've got somebody standing next to you 
and a lot of times, you know, the harder something is, the more difficult the situation, there can be a relief for the person who is coming to aid and knowing that the harder it is, the less you have to say, because you can't fix it with words. And that's what we want to do. We want to fix it. We want to take it away. We want to make it all better, but we can't always do that. You know, sometimes we just have to be present. And I, I would rather have somebody come in and say the wrong thing than have somebody never come. Uh Boy, I, I took a advocacy training. Ironically, it was actually a 40 hour sexual assault <laughs> advocacy <laughs> training. And um, they had this panel of advocates that advocate to specific cultural communities. And so they were talking about, you know, when you're when you're advocating to someone who's coming from a different cultural background, there's all sorts of challenges in that. And one of the questions was like, how do you meet somebody where they're at if you don't necessarily understand their context? And I'll never forget what this woman said. She, I think she was from the Native American community. Um, she did advocacy on a reservation. And she said, all humans will undergo suffering. And even though it may not be the same suffering as somebody else, we all have that baseline. And that's where empathy comes from. Mm -hmm. is from tapping into your understanding of what suffering is and then extending that to somebody else. And I think that's so wise because that is what compassion is. That is what empathy is. It comes from recognizing that we're all going to lose something. We're all going to suffer something. And although you can't compare people's trauma and you never should, they're all going to be unique and they're all going to be different. We all have that baseline. And if we could tap into that a little bit more and sort of take off these masks that we put on ourselves that say like, look how perfect and clean and nice my life is. Look at my Instagram filtered life. <laughs> it would be it would be so much better. Our communities would be stronger and our healing capacity would be a lot more robust. And like you had said, I mean, I can say from a totally different background of trauma, like the things that I remember in those instances were just the people who showed up repetitively. I don't even remember like 90% of the time what they said, or if they even said anything, it's just that they were there and they kept showing up over and over and over again. Nikki and I have talked about this actually, like no one is going to be offended by your care. Yeah. So just care about people, just reach out, just tell them you love them, tell them you're there for them. Even if you don't understand exactly what they're going through, be the person who weeps with them instead of being the person who tries to fix their life. You know, Jesus literally was going to fix Mary and Martha's problem. He was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, you know, five to yep. 15 minutes after this point. Yep. <laughs> and he still took the time to, to grieve with them, to weep with them, to meet with them where they were at that moment. And I, and I think along those lines is you talk about rating where somebody is at. Well, this trauma is this bad and this trauma is this bad. I think a lot of times it's easy for us to rate our own experiences and downplay them. So, well, I never had that kind of experience. So I, I have no place to step into that. I'm not good enough or I haven't had this, this kind of experience where I've been able to learn and grow and all that kind of stuff. For me, I like hearing stories of someone that says, you know what? I grew up in the church. It was a wonderful experience. I never had to experience any kind of physical trauma like you did. 
you know, I've struggled with different things in my life, but all in all, life has actually been really good. That's encouraging to me because then I can say, wait, you don't have to go through all this crap in life? That offers hope to me because that means that down the road, well, then maybe I can be that kind of person who's not living in hell all the time. I can be somebody who is able to find peace and learn how to navigate life and experience this kind of experience. Yeah. I want to hear those kinds of stories. I love how that pulls everybody out of the woodwork. It pulls all of us in this together in a unifying way, which we know that Jesus prayed for that on our behalf. I love that. There's a seat at the table for you. Yes. Any last thoughts that you have before we close out the show here? For somebody that's listening to this, that is not in that place of being able to share yet. I want you to know that that's okay. That it's, it's okay to take your time, whatever time it takes to take care of yourself. I just want you to know that it does get better. There is hope that you're not going to be stuck for the rest of your life. And there are, there are resources available. Um, I mean, go to House of Faith and Freedom. You can find all kinds of stuff there for, for places that you can go to reach out if you don't feel like what's local is safe. You know, you do that in your own time. You have the control. You have the power in this. Take your time, but know that it will be okay. And you will get through this. And God's love has not changed for you. He still loves you beyond measure. He still has purpose for you. And he still has a plan for your life. And good things are in the future. God will wipe away every tear in your eye. Promise. Ooh, I just feel like I like want to hold space around that because it's so good and true and valuable. And I feel like I need to just say again, it's true. <laughs> I, I echo all those sentiments because they're reality. And like Mark said, if you're listening to this and you've experienced a sexual assault or you've experienced a trauma in your past or you're living in a marriage where you're undergoing sexual abuse, everything that he just said is 100% true for you today, exactly where you are. And with that, Mark, I just thank you so much for being willing to come forward and to talk about your story and to come to the communion of saints and offer it so that it can tell somebody else that they're not alone. Thank you for helping me do it. Absolutely. You've been listening to Seeking Sanctuary House to Heart. This podcast is a production of House of Faith and Freedom and 321 Media with your hosts, Hannah and Nikki. For more information about intimate partner violence training for the church, check out our website, houseoffaithandfreedom.org. 